Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. My guest today is Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, one of the world's premier public intellectuals whose latest best-selling book is Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. Dr. Dyson has been a guest on our show before. He's an incredible scholar, ordained Baptist minister, and one of the most prolific and prominent intellectuals and scholar activists in the country. Welcome. It's great and a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Professor Joseph, always uh, great to talk to one of the most gifted uh, intellectuals we have in America today and one of the greatest uh, public intellectuals who makes plain the predicate of our positions and our engagement in the world. So it's an honor to be here, sir. So much to chop up with you. We're in deep, deep mourning over Dante Wright, um, Alex Toledo, this scourge of Black death that you've called uh, Black death and Black people dying slow death or fast death. And that, you know, you you write in long time coming through eight chapters, you write to Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, you write to these different Black people who've died, uh, been killed, murdered by the police, George Floyd and others. Uh, I first want to get your thoughts on Dante Wright. We're going to go to the Derek Chauvin trial, but you know, there's so much happening right here in America, uh, this period that I've called the third reconstruction. What do you think about what's happening and the death of this young man, 20 years old in, in Brooklyn Center, Minneapolis? It's heartbreaking. It's traumatic. It's tragic. It's unnecessary. And yet unnecessary by our standards of humanity, of humane treatment, of a kind of policing that at its worst should be just and at its best should be restorative and redemptive and preservative of life, this is yet another ugly mark against policing in America and against the decision of police people throughout this country. It's not an individuated thing. It's a systemic and structural problem where police people consistently respond to us as animals, as less than human, refusing to see to us the legitimacy of our dignified humanity. The reason that young man, Mr. Dante Wright, 20 years old, a father himself, was speaking to his mother on the phone Mm -hmm. as he was being, you know, pursued by the police, afraid of what would happen to him not 10 miles or so from the very site where George Floyd lost his life, Mm -hmm. that in the midst of that miasma, that chaos, that he might himself be a victim of police brutality, police misbehavior, police misconduct, and worse, of killing by the police. Um, He was right to be afraid. He jumped back into his car because Mm -hmm. he wanted to escape their clutches They knew where he lived, similar to Rayshard Brooks. Why are you shooting him? Why are you even attempting, as you claim, to taser him over a traffic stop, over a traffic violation in the midst of a pandemic where we have been warned that not everybody will be able to renew their licenses? So please use discretion and kindness. And yet that kindness and discretion did not get attached to black people. 
And this young man lost his life with a woman claiming to have reached for her taser and shot him with a gun as if tasers are safe. A thousand people or so in the next in the in the um, recent past have lost their lives uh, because of tasers. It is not safe. It is preferable, of course, to outright being murdered by uh, a policeman with a gun. But this is tragic and traumatic and needs to be addressed in our communities and in this nation. And I wanted to talk to you, Dr. Dyson, Doc, about about uh, defund the police, abolish prison, right. because when we think about Derek Chauvin, when we think about um, now this 13-year-old in Chicago and the mayor in Chicago is under very heavy pressure to resign, to do something, how can we end this kind of Black death? Because it seems to me we're paying a lot more national and global attention to it. But it seems to me that it continues to happen, even though I know at the local level You've got grassroots activists, BLM. Los Angeles and Austin are two cities that have redirected, reallocated some budgets away from policing and law enforcement. But we really need big structural transformative changes. And I think changes that go beyond the proposed George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, too. So so where are we at? What, what can be done? Because it seems like we're getting a lot more attention for this. And, and it actually has allowed... Black intellectuals like us and scholar activists to get more attention for the work. People are more interested in what we do. Yet every time you look, you see somebody else uh, really, let's face it, being murdered by law enforcement. Uh, Somebody who's unarmed, somebody who's innocent, somebody who has their whole life ahead of them. I think about Dante Wright. I think about your book, Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America, because you write movingly about black bodies being killed and pursued by law enforcement, going back to racial slavery. And you talk, you use an outstanding word, fugitive democracy, and this idea that black people who are part of maroonage and maroon societies, and they, they, they created bubbles and spaces of love uh, for themselves. You talk about the political economy of the night uh, during antebellum slavery and after during the age of Jim Crow, how black people tried to live lives that were unpoliced that were full of joy and not just pain and trauma. So I'd love for you to talk about that. Yes, sir. Well, you summed it up uh, much more beautifully and eloquently than I could. Thank you for that. And all that is important. And I want to hear what you have to say about what we do, because I tell you, I'm frustrated. I'm going to talk, but I I literally want to hear what you say after I finish. To me, um, you know, abolition of the police, re-envisioning the police, reimagining the police is overdue. Um, now I, I am not against strategy, which means I'm not against finding whatever word that will float the boat of people who might get on board, uh, should a different term be used. I'm not one of these leftists and progressives who's, uh, you know, deeply and profoundly opposed to having to have strategy. One of the spoiled characteristics of speaking to yourself in an echo chamber is, well, that term is all right. Why are you mad at it? And so on. I, I get that. You you should have reasons to defend abolition because they were against abolition when we were talking about slavery, too. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so it, ain't like, it ain't like, oh, yes, if you find the right term, they'll be uh, on board uh, with you against abolition. We know that's okie doke, too. And that's malarkey, as the president uh, Biden would say. On the other hand, we shouldn't be so defensive that we don't use whatever the best term is to get to the uh, to the issue, to the hub of the matter, to the nub of the matter that we seek to put in force. 
So I don't mind uh, being self-critical, but whatever it is, we got to get rid of these police. Whatever it is, these departments have to be reconfigured. I argue in my book that we should, you know, decentralize uh, the efficacious power of police departments by redistributing their resources and their duties. The police are not the only uh, functionaries in charge of public safety. Why can't we distribute public safety by decentering, decentralizing police authority, especially these police unions? Now, you might not legally be able to get rid of unions. I'm a union man talking about these unions, but uh, often this <laughs> is complicated. Even as a progressive, you know, I was a member of UAW, uh, United Auto Workers in Detroit, when I worked in the factory. So I'm down with the unions, but police unions have been a scourge to democracy and to the masses of black and brown peoples in this country. So we got to figure out a way to, de you know, to decenter these unions, to defund them. And if we can't defund them, to render them legally irrelevant, if we take the duties of policing, for the most part, out of the hands of police departments and redistribute them along axes of public safety. When you, when you have a call for somebody who's having a psychotic breakdown, why are you sending Officer O'Shaughnessy? He don't know nothing about that, or Officer Jones, for that matter. Send somebody who is trained in, you know, psychotic breakdowns and psychotherapy, in intervention in a way that deals with mental health. Now, some police people have been equipped, but most of them ain't been. So figure out a way we can, uh, you know, uh, equip them more ably. And then beyond that, figure out ways uh, in which public safety can be handled in a non-intrusive, non-invasive fashion. We know only a small percentage, what, two, three, four percent of the police work is involving, you know, stopping people and holding guns to their heads and trying to make them do the right thing and engaged in violent activity. Most of these cops are taking kid the kiddies out of trees and answering other police uh, matters. So, so why is it that we have overstocked on this weaponry? And that's another thing we got to do. We got to de we got to demilitarize the police, yeah. you know, and take away as they started to do under the Obama administration some of this weaponry. Although departments of you know you know military uh, outfits were giving uh, this surplus uh, weaponry to these local police departments. To start again these uh, covenants that were issued by the Department of Justice, especially most recently under Eric Holder. We didn't really see that much under his successor, um, the first black woman to be uh, named Attorney General. Loretta uh, Lynch. Right, uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch. But we saw a great deal of it under uh, Eric Holder. And so we need to start that up again. And then it ain't just a matter of training. You can't train a white person not to hate black people. You can't train a white person uh, not to be inclined to think of black people in a nefarious fashion, right? That's cultural, racial, institutional mechanisms and matrices, which must be enforced uh, across the culture in order for policing uh, to become more just. Police people are a reflection of the broader impulse of society and they are more dangerous because they've been outfitted with guns and badges and tasers and batons and, and the weaponry of the state. And the greatest shield they have is qualified immunity and the state support, where it is extremely, extraordinarily difficult to hold a cop 
uh, to account. So I said all that, but I want to know what you think. Well, you know, what I think with Derek Chauvin trial is that we have been prematurely celebrating, and even now with Officer Kim Potter, who's been um, arrested and charged with um, manslaughter, um, we can't be so excited that uh, police officers in two very high-profile cases, especially the Chauvin trial, uh, the, the the person who... who who murdered George Floyd is being held into account without understanding these systemic issues. But what I think also, as we just learned, Kyle Rittenhouse, the Kenosha shooter, who 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 basically massacred two uh, white allies who were marching uh, in defense of Black lives and and opposing the Jacob Blake shooting, we learned that law enforcement donated. Uh, to Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, we know that, um, you know, R- Rick Schroeder and actors uh, helped get his bail. Uh, so right. there's something very, very nefarious, a fifth column within law enforcement and the U.S. military, by the way. Uh, President Biden said during his inauguration that white supremacy was a problem. But we know as a fact that there were certain National Guard and certain military who were um, taken off duty for the inauguration who were perceived as security threats. This is military and law enforcement perceived as security threats. And we've seen this at the U.S. Capitol, where even as some U.S. Capitol police fought bravely and died on the scene, died later, um, there were others uh, at that white supremacist riot on January 6, 2021, who was taking selfies with the white mob. So we're really in trouble. We're really in trouble because right now, we have a far right wing uh, that includes politicians. It includes the Republican Party. It includes, at times, big business who are on the right uh, in conjunction with the military, in conjunction with law enforcement, who are talking about stealing presidential elections, who are talking flat out about murdering black folks in mass. Mm. And this is 2021. So this is why we say this is this is a, another period of reconstruction, because during the first reconstruction, you have Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, alongside of the Klan and, and the red shirts and, 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 and massacres and pogroms. And during that reconstruction period, people don't know this. You, you know this, Doc. But you also have black women and men who were armed and defending themselves way before the Black Panthers, way before Robert F. Williams and Malcolm X and the Garveyism, right? They were defending themselves in South Carolina, in Texas, in Louisiana, right? Uh, Right. You know, in in, in Florida, in Alabama, in Mississippi, in in the entire entire South, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And other parts. So I just think we're, we're in real trouble in ways that we're not acknowledging. And I don't mean you, Doc. I mean the, the entire country is, is not acknowledging. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. And as you said, Derek Chauvin's trial is not justice for black Americans. And, you know, this this is just the beginning. You know, they keep treating the, 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 the floor like it's a ceiling. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they think that's the highest we can go. That's where we got to start. Y'all just exactly. started the place, you know, that, that uh, you know, we just started the place y'all want to end. And all that stuff you're saying is absolutely true. Um, you know, these police unions are support and individuals supporting uh, Kyle Rittenhouse while killing a 13-year-old kid in Chicago and the police 
uh, union head there in Chicago. It was justified. It's only a few seconds when he, you know, that they have to act. Well, the man, the young boy, 13 years old, turned around with his hands up. You have to provide him opportunity to obey your command. And when he obeys your command, you cannot shoot him. Of course, they're trying to smear him. He's got a fresh tattoo. He's a gang member. I don't care if he's a priest or a prevaricator. He deserves the right under the law. You are not the judge and jury. And these police people are out of control. So we have empowered them and given them the imprimatur of the state to legitimate, validate, and justify what they do. And we got to oppose that, man. And, and Doc, we've empowered them to enforce the color line. That's what we always miss. The whole point of policing, and you write about this in Long Time Coming, um, it's connected to slave patrol. The institutionalization parallels Jim Crow segregation and patrolling. Uh, you write about this, swimming pools that closed down once they were going to be integrated, schools that closed down instead of being integrated. So the whole idea of law enforcement historically, but then especially after 1968, we've turned law enforcement into a weapon against Black humanity after Dr. King's assassination. So instead of choosing the beloved community, we doubled down on white supremacist law and order which is always unlawful and disorderly. Absolutely. That's it. And we've gotten worse and not better. And we got to really speak up and speak out. And hopefully we can continue to galvanize communities across America uh, with this onslaught, because a lot of white folk are finally getting the message, too. And we know you can't sell a 10 million albums without white folk and you can't have a big protest movement that's the largest in history without white folk and you ain't going to change this country without white folk. So we hope they show up as allies for real, for real. Well, let's talk about that because um, you you were a supporter of President Biden even when he was um, Vice President Biden on his way to the White House. You got a lot of flack for that. Um, yep. Certainly he's, he's governed, um, you know, very, very progressively uh, so far. Um, but when we know there's a 50-50 Senate and uh, Joe Manchin has darn near been the co-president because he's got the veto power yeah, and, and, and preventing Biden and Kamala Harris from, from doing all that they can do. And you've got the squad, AOC, Ayanna Presley, Cori Bush, these brilliant women, women of color, black women, who are really speaking truth to power about intersectionality. Stacey Abrams, who who saved Uh, at least temporarily, democracy uh, in Georgia. What can Biden, and not just Biden, what can can elected officials do at this point? Because I think that part of what we're facing is the limits of electoral and mainstream politics. Because sometimes people like Jim Clyburn, Representative Clyburn, who I, I, I absolutely respect, but I've had real disagreements with, will say all Black people need to do is sort of vote. Now, not only is there massive voter suppression, but we can see even though Biden won 7 million more votes than his opponent, who is a white supremacist, by the way, he can't get progressive bills passed. He only could get the COVID pandemic bill passed uh, because of, 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 of a very specific way they did it through the Senate, reconciliation. And he could only get that passed because Mansion was aboard. So we're seeing the limits of democratic, conventional democratic politics, small d, 
uh, politics, uh, small d democracy politics. So what can be done? Because that's why so many people are out in the streets in Philadelphia, in Brooklyn Center, uh, in Portland, Oregon, because the conventional means of of political change and transformation leave much to be desired. And I'm not making an argument not to vote. Everyone should vote, but we're seeing the limits of voting in this democracy. Yeah, no doubt. Who did you say was a white supremacist? I wanted to make sure I heard that right, though. It wasn't Joe. The former president of the United States. Oh, right. right. Yeah, Yeah, unquestionably there. Um, No, you're absolutely right. It's vote and. But see, so many of these young folk, man, and I'm going to sound like an old Negro. Oh, let me tell you about these young people. But but so many young folk, I get why they are discouraged and they feel voting ain't it. It's not that voting ain't it. It's voting only ain't it. Yes. You got to do everything you're doing now and vote. But here's the thing. If you vote and you actually have an impact and you put different people in office, are you telling me? You don't understand what a big difference that makes. If 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 Joe Manchin is in the minority among Democrats and we've elected people, you know, a, a Senate where Joe Manchin's vote doesn't matter. Are you telling me that doesn't make a difference? It does. Now, you can square up with the potential for that outcome to be likely with your you know empirical uh, you know, um, investigation of what state is likely to have a more progressive versus a more centrist versus a more uh, conservative Democrat or, you know, a figure who might be able to get through that I get. But what I don't get is the fact that if you don't know that voting makes a difference in so far as not just you dimpling that chat, okay, they don't do that anymore, pulling that lever and uh, putting that X where by your by your preferred candidate and then electronically or physically, uh, you know, through paper ballot voting. Uh, and that can change the makeup of the country. Let me see. Can I look for an example? Oh, here's one that right now, Joe Biden has a majority with Kamala Harris in the Senate and in the House. Thin majorities, to be certain. Mm-hmm. But look at what uh, legislation is already passed. And let me say something to my fellow progressives. Just admit you were wrong so far about Biden. Just, you know, all the hate I got. I'm sorry, man. I ain't gloating, but I will loat, you know, without the G, I can load or oat without the GL, <laughs> you know, or maybe without the GLO, I can at <laughs> or glow GLO. Sorry, y'all. I'm being goofy. But the point is that dead gummit, I took a lot of hell and heat. Oh my God, he's worse than blah, blah. And he's been far more prog- AOC. And and Bernie Sanders and and Jamal Bowman is that his name and and yeah. you know a lot of progressive folk I mean they think it well you know so far as you know pretty decent and it ain't as bad as we thought so acknowledge that to begin with because politics is about um, necessarily so in this country and many many others as well but especially here about a certain kind of compromise not a surrender not a capitulation but just not purist politics. Having said that, you got to get your butts and and behinds and and bodies out in those streets. You got to continue to protest. You got to continue to galvanize communities. You got to continue to organize. You got to continue to make people aware of the relationship between not only their vote in democracy, but their organization in democracy, their organizing in democracy, raising their voices, writing letters, sending emails, making calls. 
yes to your senators and to your congresspeople and that stuff. That's important. But also putting social pressure out here on the president, on the vice president, on the United States Congress. Why? They are we realizing is it H.R. 40? I mean, we just passed the bill that said we at least going to take a look at it. That's progress. Now, it ain't enough progress, but that wouldn't have happened without years and years of social resistance, of protest, of bringing pressure. So you're absolutely right. Voting alone ain't it. But God dang it, you got to vote as well. Um, You know, it's like saying to somebody's drowning, you know, floating alone ain't enough. You got to get on a boat and get out the water. That's true. But you got to float first. In order to stay alive long enough to get on a boat, to get out of water. So it it is important that we stress that. And I don't want to seem like I'm at war with these young people, but I am in certain levels with the cancel culture. I don't want to beat that horse to death. But I, I just think that it's part of the same mindset and logic that it comes easy or we just can just snap a finger and it can be done. No, this is hard, unsexy work. I'd love to um, right there with segue because you talk about cancel culture in the book and this reckoning with race in America, but you, you define cancel culture, not as um, just oh, this the, idea of, of, right. of whites who are being sort of held accountable no, for no. bad behavior. I'm all you, for that. You, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you define it in, in a much bigger way saying that yeah. you, basically black Twitter at times in a search for justice tried to hold, specific people accountable in ways that at times um, didn't allow for enough enough grace and enough redemption. And, and you explain why uh, they were looking at individuals and not structures and systems, because it's hard right. for Black folks to get, to get justice, for women Thank to you. get justice, et Thank cetera. You. Thank you for saving me and explaining what I'm up to <laughs> and not having young people calling and go, see, he the problem. <laughs> You're right. That's exactly what I'm doing. And not only for grace and restorative justice, but that government, you could be wrong. You, you, ain't, you ain't look as jacked up as the courts are. At least they have a defense and a prosecution, bro. And mm-hmm. in council culture, ain't no two sides. It's my side and it's the only side. It's my side and you're wrong. It's my side and I'm just. It's my side and this is the only way to be just. And that to me is dangerous because that borrows from fascism, derives from white supremacy principles uh, and predicates like uh, my way or the highway, uh, zero tolerance. If it happened, you're done. I mean, so grace, yes. Forgiveness, yes. But accountability, yes. Um, But also self-criticism or maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're going after this person. Have we heard from him or her? Uh, Can we judge them in a context that we're not like the police? You're no better than the police who are judge and jury with a badge and a gun deciding on the streets who should receive justice and who shouldn't. There's no difference. It's ironic to me that the same people mad at police injustice are practicing cancel culture. It's an essential moral contradiction to me. And as you said, I'm not talking about white folk being held to account. I'm not talking about Matt Gates and 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 uh, Donald Trump and and you know um, these people out here, these white politicians. Oh, this is cancel culture because they're holding them accountable, or you know the the corporations are withdrawing their uh, you know their. Uh, support of these conservatives and these Republicans in deference to, um, you know, black people and other allies who are out here trying to fight against uh, not only police brutality, but fighting against 
uh, voter suppression and the like, and therefore t- using targeted boycotts to send a message. I ain't talking about none of that. I'm talking about the vicious belief that your way is the only way and that you will eviscerate your opponent or a person with whom you disagree without any understanding that you could be wrong. You may not have all the facts and you have to be quite careful about about generating and galvanizing a digital lynch mob. Now, I want to talk about, you know, BLM has been in the news a lot lately. lately, And I know that BLM, Black Lives Matter, has also been uh, smeared by the right. But anti-racism has Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram Kendi, different folks who really are part of the racial reckoning, yourself. Uh, there's been um, real smearing of, of some of the founders about homes they've purchased, uh, trying to act as if the organization is corrupt. I think one of the interesting parts, your book is subtitled Reckoning with Race in America. This year or so since George Floyd's uh, murder and the protest has really transformed and ratcheted up uh, what I would say is the relationship between race, neoliberalism, and democracy and Black activism. Because there were so much millions of dollars funneled into organizations for the first time, and not just BLM, but um, you know every, everything, voting rights stuff, LDF, so so many different, and quite quite deservedly, I might add. Uh, but also during this pandemic, so many different writers and public intellectuals got more access. Their 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 services were called for and in demand. What what do you make of? Um, of these criticisms against grassroots organizers, not just by the right, but at times by the left, about accountability, transparency, uh, with the funds that they've raised. Uh, what what do they owe? What do they owe? And and in speaking broader, really intellectuals as well, scholars uh, in this context. What do we owe uh, uh, to the movement, to the people, to the public? Because in a lot of ways, I think in 2020 and 2021 our services are more in demand than ever. Yeah, that's a great point. I want to hear your answer to that. But let me let me briefly say, because you're a historian with a broad purview and long uh, interpretive analysis over uh, the hall of history. So I really am interested in what you say. And then previous examples of people being held to account, the way in which they smear Patrice Cullors or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or other leaders, they've Tamika Mallory, they've smeared Martin Luther King Jr. in the past and, yes. and the like. But I want to hear your take on that. But we do owe integrity. We do owe principled behavior and belief. Um, and there's a right way to ask questions about where you spent that money uh, and where is it going. Uh, I saw a recent interview, I think, with our friend uh, Mark Hill. Yeah. On, you know, Patrice Cullors, yes. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And she said, this ain't no charity. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Some people, they're like, well, damn, really? Okay. Uh, this is a power and a, and a, and a, and a, a way to distribute resources. So you got to acknowledge. Well, and if, if, if they have received $90 million, because again, I, I'm not their bookkeeper, what that means is that you can be fully endowed in perpetuity. And it, just because you've received $90 million, if you're if you're doing your fiscal responsibility, it means you've invested, you know, basically for every million dollars you invest in an organization as a permanent endowment, they can draw 500000 per year as an annual budget. So right. basically, if you're thinking, if, if people want to know, you know, depending on how much of that $90 million you've invested, it means that BLM... Uh, you, you can have a bigger endowment basically than maybe even the NAACP. I don't know 
what the NAACP is worth. But endowments, as you know, that's what schools live off of, universities live off of. And then you'd, you'd also have to connect the endowment. How much of that, that endowment is going to be for salaries? How much is it going to be for uh, programming and lobbying? So, so it, is, it is quite complex. And then with the BLM founders, somebody like Patrice Cullors, what, what salary is she drawing? Is she head of the board of directors? Or is she CEO? Who's your CFO? So it's, it, it becomes complicated. It really is. I mean, I'm glad you broke that down and got a sense of and given us and give, have given us a sense of, you know, what's at stake here and on the ground stuff. You know, when I think uh, Mr. Brown wanted 20 million dollars and then, you know, and, and, and let's be real. <laughs> Brown and so is it Samir Samir Rice, you know, who's who's criticizing Tamika Mallory and stuff because you lost a child. And God bless you. And we are deeply and profoundly in mourning with you still about that. Doesn't mean you can lead a movement or gives you the right or gives you the skill to generate an organization that can address the very death that your child endured or your children endured or prevent future occasions of death. No, that's That's the hard truth, Doc. The part of my money is just because just because you've experienced that don't mean you know what you're doing. Yeah. It doesn't give you a right to slander Tamika Mallory. Oh, yeah. And, and the request for 20 million, that's an emotional request. I ignored that. And I think they would have ignored it. Like, you know, you, you don't get you know, you don't get a payday for funds that were raised for this social movement uh, because y- you're, you're the tragedy that occurred in your life is 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 one of the gal galvanic catalyzing events of the movement. It doesn't work that way. It just really doesn't. Yeah. And you got to yeah. figure out a way to, you know, understand that, you know, uh, this is complicated stuff. This is amazingly complicated stuff. And you've got to really be on, you know, point and you got to support people who are doing the right thing. Hold them accountable. You know, when people ask Minister Farrakhan, where that money at? Where, where's the money for the Million Man March? That's a legitimate qu- question. Where's the money going for raised for Black Lives Matter? But here's the thing, isn't it? They can dog Martin Luther King Jr. and charismatic organizations and NAACP and National, uh, you know, National Urban League and National Action Network. But you be knowing whether there's one person you can call. That, that's Al Sharpton. That's you know, Mr. Johnson uh, at uh, the NAACP and Mr. Mar- Mayor Morial at the National Urban League. Who are you going to call a Black Lives Matter? Oh, let me see. Dang. That's, uh, well, I guess we know about Patrice Cullors. But but yeah, but I'm saying, right, that's one person. But I'm yeah. saying it's such a diffuse organization deliberately and strategically yeah. mm-hmm. that, you know, there are many different, you know, subsections and you know, Black Lives Matter is both a movement and an organization. And then what Alicia Garza is doing, Garza is doing is different than what Patrice Cullors is doing, you know, and with the Black Labs. So it's it, it's a little bit more complicated and it shows some of the deficits. Can we be critical of Black Lives Matter? We love Black Lives Matter. Well, of course, it can be critical. Yeah, absolutely. And that's our job. Our jobs is to be and you can be have a respectful critique of saying, hey, it would be better if in addition to this, there were some some people who people knew and could identify with. Obviously, a weakness of that is that that means they can be smeared like is happening to Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors right now. Right. So you can see it in some ways, the weakness of sort of that kind of charismatic leadership. 
Doc, my, my final uh, question to you, your last chapter is called Evergreen Hope. Mm-hmm. What gives you hope in this moment? Because you wrote this book before Dante Wright, but certainly you wrote it after. When you open up the flap, it's uh, Dear Elijah uh, McCain, Emmett Till, Eric Garner, Brianna Taylor, Hadia Pendleton, Sandra Bland, and Reverend Clemente uh, Pinkney. And you say, I wrote this for you. What, what gives you hope? You know, when I talk to young people like you, brilliant, gifted scholars, edifying activists, joining the best tradition of Du Bois, being uh, trained to the hilt, uh, extraordinarily gifted scholar, and yet also public intellectual, because them two ain't the same. And then public intellectual join to public activists, young people out here trying to be self-critical and yet, you know, committed to the movement gives me hope. Young people of all races and stripes and creeds in terms of their particular organizational structures and affiliations who are progressive, who are insightful, trying to make a difference. White folk out here trying to ask, what can we do to make it real, not just performative, even though I hate that performative has been hijacked to mean something that is not serious. I get it because performance has been so critical to black culture Absolutely. in a very profound way. And Absolutely. I don't want that word to just be dismissed like, oh, he's just performing. Well, dude, King was a performer. Absolutely. Uh, Rose was a performer. Absolutely. Barnett was a performer. Absolutely. So in the best sense. So, you know, I think it's extremely important to believe in those kind of folks and what they're doing. And it gives me hope that we can continue to look past the horizon of the immediate event we confront, as Howard Thurman said, to become a prisoner of hope, mm-hmm. which means deliberately, as our slave foreparents did, look at the long rolls of cotton, the rawhide whip of the overseer, and still see a possibility beyond that, that vision, that aspiration that continues to renew itself in our own particular times offers me great hope that we can overcome and still move forward. Well, eloquent as usual, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, we've been chopping it up. Dr. Dyson has been one of my friends, uh, mentors, colleagues, inspirations. Uh, He's distinguished university professor at Vanderbilt, the author of dozens and dozens of books and New York Times bestsellers, the latest, which is Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. This is a brilliant book, beautiful book that I recommend everyone to purchase. And Dr. Dyson uh, is an NAACP Image Award winner. He's the 2020 Langston Hughes Festival Medallion and has so many other different honorifics, all well-deserved. But um, it's just also just a down-ass brother on top of everything <laughs> who can just chop it up. A Detroit native, love Motown. Well, a Detroit like native, a father, a husband. You know, just somebody who's, who's, who's really good people and cares about the Black community, which is sort of the highest praise um, we, can, we can give somebody. Like Martin and Malcolm, he's got the political uh, integrity, the personal sincerity, and the unapologetic love for Black people. And so I really appreciate this conversation, Dr. Dyson. It takes one to know one. Thank you so much, my friend. I'm so honored to be here and God bless you and keep up the great work. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H and our website csrd.lbj.utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.